0: Okay, church, why don't we uh, turn to 2 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, and we're going to go from 19 to 21, just three verses today. So if you found uh, 2 Peter... Chapter 119, when you stand with me. Peter writes, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. Spoke from God, Father. We are coming to you with open minds and open hearts and open ears to learn from you today. We learned here that your Scripture, your prophet, your prophetic word concerning Jesus was uh, was written through the Spirit moving in men's minds. And I just uh, pray that your Spirit move in my mind to help me relay truth in a in a way that's pleasing to you, in a way that's accurate, from the way you intended it to be spoken and written. Uh, we look forward to our time together, and we especially look forward to the dialogue after, and uh, seeing how you've uh, brought questions forward from the congregation that they may not have thought of before, or maybe be spurred on to, to trust you more, or to live out our lives in a more pleasing way to you. So we look forward to our time. In Christ's name, amen. Welcome everyone as we carry on in our sermon series in 2 Peter and I just want to spend a few seconds reminding you of where we left off. Really the focus of the sermon last time surrounded the events of the Transfiguration. Uh, You'll remember that the reason Peter spent so much time reminding reminding us of this experience was because of the heretical claims the false teachers were making about the second coming of Christ. Uh, they were flat out denying that Jesus was coming back. In the chapter 3 he says they were scoffing at that idea. And as a result of that teaching, they, they believed that you could have a, live a moral lifestyle as a Christian with no consequence because God was not going to judge you. Because the Second Coming and the judgment of God were linked hand in hand. So if there's no coming, there's no judgment. So be free to live however you like. This of course is contrary to the Apostles' teaching. But the problem was it was their word against his, uh, the Apostles' word. And so Peter needs to establish credibility. So he reminded the readers of the transfiguration experience, because this is an experience in which he got a preview of the second, about the absolute certainty of Christ's return, as well as the coming of his kingdom. So really, the, the transfiguration experience confirmed that Jesus was coming back, and therefore, whose word was to be trusted? Theirs, the theirs apostles, or the false teachers, and it was a, a no-brainer there. But as we begin our portion of scripture today, we see that the transfiguration experience also confirms something else for Peter, and that had to do with the trustworthiness or the reliability of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the prophecies concerning Jesus. And we pick this up in 19. He says, so, in relation to the transfiguration, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now I did some research and I found out there are about 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. They ranged from where he was born, to how he was going to be conceived, to the tribe he was going to come from, uh, the method in which he was going to be executed, uh, the events surrounding his death, like such as his betrayal and people like uh, abandoning him. To even to the exact date of his death, from the book of Daniel. Now, by the time Peter writ- had written this letter, all of these had come true in his lifetime, even though many of these prophecies had been written hundreds of years before he was born. I'll give you an example from Isaiah 53. There were 12 prophecies alone, or predictions, concerning his death, just his death. Uh, I'll just give you a few of them. Uh, It was predicted in Isaiah 53, he'd be rejected by men, he'd be despised by others, he'd be pierced for our transgressions, he would die with the wicked, he would die sinless, and in his death he would pray for others. All of these things came true. But there were also many prophecies concerning Jesus' return and the establishment of his kingdom. Prophecies that had not yet been fulfilled in Peter's day. But it made logical sense then for Peter that if all the scriptures that he'd known, that were written hundreds of years before, had come true in his lifetime, and he'd seen these, then by logical conclusion it would make sense then that the prophecies concerning Jesus in the future would have to come true as well. It would be inconsistent to have everything fulfilled before uh, before he was even born, and then none of them fulfilled after he was born. The Transfiguration experience basically Uh, just confirmed the reliability and trustworthiness of the scriptures for him. Because in that declaration, and what he saw and heard that day, God made it clear that Jesus was coming back. And so then he looked at the Old Testament prophecies, not only concerning his death and his his birth and stuff, but his second coming and thought, you know what? After that experience, I know for a fact that these scriptures are true. Now what I'm not saying is that he didn't trust the scriptures before, or he didn't believe they were true before, But what I'm saying is that experience just basically uh, confirmed for him the reliability of them. And it was basically like uh, adding a notch on his belt. The exact wording he says is we have the prophetic word made more sure because of this event. Now for this reason then, Peter demands a response. He says this to us. Because of this, he says, you would do well to pay attention to this. You do well to pay attention to this as a lamp shining in the darkness until the day dawns and the morning stars are rising in your hearts." Again, context is key. Why would it be important for the readers then and for us today to pay attention? Because the false teachers were saying, don't have to worry about it. He's not coming back, so who cares? You can live however you want. And false teachers today will often say, you know what, it doesn't matter about uh, really how you live. It's just, about a, uh, it's just about being saved, and once you're saved, you're good with God, and so you can live however you like. And you can adopt any immoral lifestyle you like, and it doesn't matter, because you're saved by grace, and not by works. That kind of whole argument. So again, that's why Peter says you do well to pay attention to this, because this is important. This is important. Now what's this whole speech about? The, the, the lamp shining in darkness, and until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts. What does that all that mean? Well, really, Peter is telling us how long we're to pay attention. This is a reference to maybe how long we're to pay attention because these phrases here actually are metaphorical, as metaphorical language or a word picture again of the second coming of Christ. You see, whenever the word day is used in the New Testament in referring to a time era, in this reference it refers to the second coming of Jesus. I won't look at them now with you because it's for the sake of time. And it's a different sermon, but if you write down in your notes, Romans 13, 11 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 5. Romans 13, 11, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, you'll see references to the day being there as the second coming of Christ. Now, this morning star reference is important, too, because this is a metaphor to describe who Jesus is. Jesus is the morning star. Um, look at... Uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16: I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright morning star. So, this is what Peter's saying to us. Uh, How long are you to pay attention to this idea that Christ is coming back, and you just can't uh, goof around and how you live, and it matters to God morally how you uh, respond to Him? Well, you, you pay attention to that teaching until the day, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when it comes back and actually does redeem you. That's a lifelong commitment in the way you think about these things. So Peter then is given as in 19, the reason why we can trust prophecy, because of the experience he had on the mountain and all the other things that have come true in the, in the past. But in verse 20, he begins to remind us of how the process by which prophecy came about. How is prophecy even put together? Let me pick this up in verse 20. He says, But know that that this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The first thing I want you to notice here is uh, Peter's comment in verse 20 that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, There's two possible ways you can interpret that, Um, interestingly enough, (laughs) based on the word interpretation there. Uh, Some believe that what Peter is saying is this, that there's no prophetic writing, sorry, no prophetic writing is a matter for private interpretation. In other words, an individual is not free to take a prophecy or text And and make it see, uh, make it fit however they see fit or give it a certain spin because they feel a certain way about it and have a personal agenda. I've seen this done with Isaiah 53 for example. There's a verse that says, by his wounds you will be healed. The prosperity gospel takes it into their own private interpretation and says, see that's a promise that God will heal all disease. By his wounds you will be healed. So that's a promise. So therefore you can declare healing over anybody's life because it's written in the prophetic scriptures that that's what he's claiming. And Peter's saying here that uh, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Meaning you're not free to do that. It's just a, you, you, you can't twist that. Of course that's not what Isaiah 53 was saying. It was the wounds he was referring to I and mean, being the healing he's referring to is, is our sin, not a promise of getting cure of cancer. And the context of Isaiah three makes this absolutely clear, but people in our days just still take it out of context and don't know how to study the scriptures properly. But I would suggest this is not what Peter's saying. I don't think he's saying it's a, no prophetic writing is a matter for a private interpretation. He's actually saying something else. He's saying this. He's talking about how prophecy came to be origi- or where its origins came from. No, no prophecy of scripture as a matter of one's own interpretation has to do with its origins. That it didn't associate or begin with man. That the source of God's word came from him and not people. So it, wasn't come through, it doesn't come through man's own mistaken notions or personal agendas. Rather, as he says in verse 21, it came by men moved by God. Sorry, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoken from God. That's the source. So, how does God communicate prophecy? If there's only if it originates with Him and it's not up for debate on how we interpret it, and it never came from man, it only came from Him. How did He bring prophecy into be into play? Well, there's one answer given to us here: it's men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoken from God. I'm going to leave that to the end. I want to show you other ways in which God communicated prophetic words, and I went through all the books of the prophets uh, just. Quickly to see how did God communicate and I found three distinct ways These are the three ways that he spoke to people in dreams visions and the spoken word Dreams visions and the spoken word We see examples of dreams in the way God spoke and communicated prophecy to someone like Daniel If you check out the book of Daniel especially Daniel chapter uh, chapter 7 You'll see God disclosing to Daniel future events regarding the coming of the Antichrist And the eventual coming of Christ, who was going to basically squash them in victory and have established his own kingdom. Now, in this dream, when Daniel received these these, uh, truths, he wrote them down. But it says there that he was so deeply affected by what he experienced while he was sleeping and, and had this dream, that basically he was distressed. He was distressed. And he said that his face grew pale and he kept the matter privately to himself. So the dreams left him like emotionally rocked. But um, that's one clear way we see God speaking to people with prophetic messages. It happened to Joseph as well. Joseph received dreams and, uh, and that's how God communicated to him as well. The second one is visions. You can see this in the book of Daniel as well. In the opening chapter of Isaiah, in the opening chapter of Amos, we see visions occurring. And I want to show you one in Ezekiel in particular. This is what it says in Ezekiel, In my thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by Kebar River, the heavens were opened up and I saw visions of God. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down. I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. Now the difference that I can see between visions and dreams is this. dreams, you're asleep when God communicates, and visions, you're awake when He communicates. Although there are times in the Bible where dreams and visions are seem to be interchanged, but as a general rule, I would call visions waking dreams. You're awake, but they're but they're like a dream to you. Okay, so one one you're awake and one you're one you're asleep primarily. But the last way this can occur, uh, God can communicate is through speaking to you. Now, in the opening verses of Joel and Hosea, uh, two minor prophets. It says this and the word of the Lord came to them and the word of the Lord came to them now we're not told in what way the Lord the, the Lord came to them in terms of speaking but I can tell you this it, it is highly likely and, and very probable that it was an audible voice that they could hear an audible voice why would I say that because that's exactly how God communicated at times with people like Moses Remember Moses before the tabernacle was built in the wilderness he used to build a tent outside of the camp a pillar of the cloud, a pillar of cloud would come and, and stay on, at the entrance of the, of the tent. Moses would go inside and it says in Exodus 33 verse 7 that the Lord spoke to him And in 33:11 it says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Well if that was some like mental like sort of picture that wouldn't be the way we'd understand that. If I speak to you as a friend I don't do it through telepathy. I speak to you with an audible voice so you can communicate words. Samuel's another great example of that in chapter 3. When Samuel's called to, to be a prophet, he's a, he's a young man, and uh, Eli is asleep, and Samuel gets, got, got, hears his, the voice, and, he, and it's audible because he thinks it's Eli. So Samuel hears God speaking to him, calling him, and he runs to Eli and says, did you call me? And Eli goes, no, I didn't. Happens three times. So so he heard an audible voice because he thought it was Eli and not God. And Eli Eli just said, you know what, you're you're new to this, basically. You don't know God's voice yet. That's actually the Lord calling you, not me. So God can speak in an audible voice. And he very well could be doing this in the prophetic words. But another way he can speak to us, or to to get the prophecies out, I should say, how we communicate prophecy, was uh, in verse 21. He says, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now this could, not, this could not necessarily be through an audible voice, but through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Um, how would he do this? Well, the word um, moved here is the same Greek word used in Acts 27:15 of how Paul's ship encountered a strong wind, and the ship was driven along or carried along the sea. Driven along or carried away by the, on the sea. So it's the same idea, that this means to be carried along or continuously uh, moved. So the Spirit is continuously moving these men in in, uh, communicating God's truths. So these men had distinct personalities, they came from different cultures and backgrounds, but the Spirit put thoughts in their mind, and then these men wrote these thoughts down. Now, is this possible? Well, of course it is. Um, because what happened with Peter? Peter said, Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. God had given him a revelation and made him understood who he was, and he made that declaration because God taught him through his mind. 1 Corinthians 2 says this about, uh, about um, how God can reveal things in this way. But it was to us that God revealed that these things by His Spirit. For His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except the person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts ex- except God's own spirit. As we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that came from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. If you're confused, let me summarize it in one, in, in one thing. He's basically saying, uh, the only one who knows the mind of God is the Spirit of God. The only person who knows mind, God of, God's mind is God's Spirit. But the Spirit, when we receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit speaks to us in our minds and reveals us the things of God and that's how these men, these prophets could write these things down and a good example again is Peter now I know the danger in this because everyone claims in our planet that uh, God spoke to them God told me this and God told me that and we're going to get into that at the end of the sermon so the question I want to deal with first is Well, how does did one know if one was a genuine prophet or a false prophet? good question 1 Samuel 3.19 answers it. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan to even Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. You are a true prophet of God if everything you said came to pass. Everything you said came to pass. It wasn't a 90-10 split, a 60-40 split. It was 100% or nothing. Is that clear? not one word failed and what God would do was he would confirm things in their present life to show their authenticity so when they spoke about future events Israel knew to listen up I'll give you two examples Daniel he, he, he predicted Nebuchadnezzar's dream he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream and God gave him the interpretation for that dream then when Daniel started to speak about future events Nebuchadnezzar listened up Elijah he would make predictions what did he do to confirm him the prophets of Baal he, uh, he would he, he the Lord of the Lord came to Elijah and says I'm going to do this amongst the prophets of Baal when he went there he said the Lord of, the word of the Lord told me and so he acted with authority in that way so again uh, God would do things in the, the lives of the prophets to confirm their authenticity in their present lifetime And so when they would speak about future events the people knew they were legitimate. False prophets however, their words would fail. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah describes these men as following after their own spirit and speaking visions from their own minds and not the mouth of the Lord. Now here's what's so key church, don't miss this because this is so contemporary. The overall message of a true prophet always included One of judgment, a calling out of sin, and moving people to repentance. Every prophet died because why? They're promising a life of blessing? No, they said you have a life of sin that needs to be turned from. And then he would say you need to repent, but then they would also highlight the blessings that would come through repentance. But their message always contained one of, of, of calling out sin and moving towards repentance. False teachers basically always made the promise that God was going to bless you here and now and make your life better on this earth. That's the message of the false teacher. Life's going to go better for you here. Um, there'll be lots to be said about this probably in dialogue, um, but I think of Lamentations chapter two, verse fourteen. I want to read you this. This is what Lamentations two fourteen says. The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. John the Baptist, why did he die? Because he called out the sin in Herod's life. That's why he lost his head while Jesus was still alive. And the crazy thing was he liked him. He liked the way he would speak and he was intrigued by him. But he lost his head for calling him out for adultery. A great example of this, just to let you know, just to see the, the difference between a false prophet and true prophet is found in 1 Kings chapter 22. This guy's name is Micaiah, He's the, uh, so what's the, the scene in Israel is this, um, Assyria is north of Israel, and uh, the king of the south uh, in Judah and the king of the north in Israel want to form an alliance to go fight uh, Ahab up in Assyria. That's Jezebel's husband. Uh, the king of Assyria in the north, sorry, the king of Israel in the north summons his prophets to see if they're going to win. And in verse 16, of, or verse 6, I should say, of Kings 22, 400 prophets show up. 400. And they ask, the king says, Should I go to war against Syria? And they say, uh, he says, yes, you shall go. And he says, for sure the Lord will deliver them into your hand, the Assyrians. For sure, the Lord says, go. The king of Judah in the south, Jehoshaphat, listens to this. And he's standing, witnessing this prophet that's going on with the king. And says, "Uh, is there anyone else in Israel we we can hear from here? And the king in the north of Israel says, there's one more guy. And I quote, but I hate him. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And so what's his name? Micaiah. So they bring him before the king and the prophets. And they say, should we go up to battle against Syria? Are we going to win? And Micaiah in front of the 400 says, you are going to get destroyed. (laughs) And the king of Israel turns to the king of of Judah and says this, quote unquote. Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? The next, the next thing that happens, the king throws the guy in jail. The king of Israel then ordered, Take Micaiah and send him back to Amon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash the king's son, and say, This is what the king says, Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Now listen to those words. Micaiah declared, If you have returned safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. And then he added, Mark my words, all you people. If when I return safely, if I'm a true prophet, you're not returning. You're dying. I told you you're going to get slaughtered. Isn't that awesome? And the 400 prophets are standing there, and, and they should see the response they have towards Micaiah when he calls them on the rug. Well, this is really contemporary church, and I'm going to conclude the sermon by talking about this. People today always say, "The Lord said," "The Lord said," "The Lord declared." I don't know if you realize how damaging this can be. I'm sure maybe you guys have been hurt by this, but many people claim to speak on behalf of God's name and not be true. Uh, Dan and I were sharing stories uh, this week about some of our experiences. I'll show you his and I'll show you mine. So Dan was in Kentucky uh, going to school. A man told him that God had revealed to him that he was to go to Africa for missions. His father happened to be a professor at the Kentucky uh, Liberty, or not um, Asbury Seminary at the time. So this is a this is a like a college professor's son saying God told me to go to Africa. Later on, he uh, pulled out and uh, never even never even went. And when he asked why, he says, "Well, I need to finish my education." In the name of the God, he was declared in front of the whole campus. God told him to go to Africa, and then he never actually went. Dan was a young man and uh, him and two other men were prophesied over by a woman that all three of them were going to have been to full-time ministry. Dan went into ministry. The other two are in their 50s and still haven't gone into ministry and have no intentions of doing so. When he was attending uh, Foothills Alliance in the northern Calgary, a woman had terminal cancer. And a wo- another person in the church came up and said, God has told me that you are going to be healed and she died just a few months later you understand how damaging that is when you have a loved one on death row and you go up to them and say the Lord has declared and they die? What does that do sometimes to the foundation of the families who are left with the grieving? My experience um, a woman told me that God had told her she was gonna have a baby Uh, A couple months later she gets pregnant and then she says that I was told specifically that baby was going to be born in November November 30th, I kept waiting, waiting, nothing came, and then finally in December, the baby was born, and, but it was all in the name of the Lord. Another woman told me that um, uh, they were going to have a girl, because they, they had all boys, and went and sold all the clothes of the kids, all the boys' clothes, because uh, they was going to have a girl. Lo and behold, a boy came out at the birth table and had to go and repurchase all boys' clothing. I studied something very interesting in, uh, when studying the, the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. The name vain means shav in Hebrew. The word shav means empty and worthless. We think that it means to take the word's name in, in vain is when you stub your toe or bang your thumb with a hammer and you, and you let a little expletive uh, that with his name in, in, in before it that you've taken his name in vain. Well you have, but that's not only how the word is used. The word shav or vain or worthless way is also used in describing how the false teachers or false prophets in the Old Testament would declare things in the name of God that didn't come true. So when we have people in our contemporary days that say, the Lord said, the Lord declares, and I'm going a prophetic message, and don't come true, they are breaking that commandment. They're breaking the Lord's name in vain and have no idea that they're doing it. So again... No prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoken from God. He communicates truth through dreams, through visions, through an audible voice, or in this way. But there has to be, when the Spirit speaks in this way, there's means by which you can test whether these things are from the Lord or not. And that's another sermon or discussion and dialogue. Okay, so Peter makes it pretty clear about the importance of the transfiguration and how it confirmed for him the reliability of Old Testament scriptures and how prophecy was all put about. Because if it's written in this way, if verse 20 and 21 are true, it's no wonder why the prophetic words concerning Jesus' second coming are to be legitimately believed. And they are going to happen in response to the false teachers who say, He ain't coming back. And Peter says, let me remind you of how prophecies put together. You need to know this because this is a legitimate uh, issue that the false teachers have to answer and can't. Although well, they'll come up with something, but they're they're wrong. Trust me, trust the word. Okay, lesson number one, then. I just repeated, I'm gonna repeat myself like okay, a broken record. Peter's transfiguration experience confirms for us the reliability of the Old Testament scriptures concerning Jesus. He said. The scriptures say Jesus is coming back. That's what they say. That's what they prophesy. When I was in the mountain, I heard and saw Jesus, God, confirming that his son was coming back and he's the Messiah who's going to rule. I, know, I now have the prophetic word made more sure because of what I experienced that day. If anyone comes into your midst outside of what you learn in this church and preaches a message like the false teachers, don't believe them. Peter's word has something to say to us for that. Now I want to just take a brief side tangent because someone might say to you, because I thought about this myself, that's easy for you to say, Andrew, because you're a Christian, you believe the Old Testament's true. So your starting point is that you believe Peter existed, you believe that Peter, the Old Testament prophecies were true, um, and so on, so therefore it's easy for you to just say that because you actually believe the Bible's true. I don't believe the Bible's true and what it was written was, was legitimate. Well, this is where this really is important for me, to help you understand the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You see, up until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the oldest text we had was a thousand years old. The oldest text. So what someone could say is, well, if Peter lived two thousand years ago and the, and, and the oldest text we have is a thousand years later, then you can make up whatever you can. You can basically write down about these prophecies that were going to happen because it's already happened. So you can look like you're really smart by writing the. the you can predict. Help me. Help, help me here. Yeah. You can What's that? You can write down yeah. You can write down things that already happened because, and that's how you seem so smart because the oldest text is a thousand years old, right? When they came to Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls, they discovered in these shepherds' caves thousands of fragments of papyrus scrolls dating dating nearly to, uh, 20 centuries old dated from the 3rd century BC from about 250 BC to 68 AD. Jesus was crucified 33 AD. So these texts are 250 to 280 years before Jesus and Peter's even around. Now why is that so and so important? because in the prophetic messages or in the in the papyrus scrolls they found every book of the Bible, Passages from every book of the Bible, except for Esther, and found the entire book of Isaiah in its completion. They found all the prophecies concerning his birth, how he's going to die, and the second coming, and all these things. And guess what happened? They, these were 250 years before Jesus was born. All those things happened. So the Dead Sea Scrolls moved our closest manuscript from a thousand years ago to two thousand years ago. So they, these were written before Jesus was even born. So when I'd say, someone says to me, well, I don't, how do you know that they weren't written after? I'd say, well, if you go study the Dead Sea Scrolls, study archeology, span and this will be a non-issue between you and I in terms of reliability of scriptures. And if it's prophesied that Jesus, where he was gonna be born or how he's gonna die, all these things and those things came true then today we have to believe the teachings about the second coming of Christ and why He's returning. We can have confidence in the reliability of the Old Testament because of the archaeological find of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Second lesson, the marker of a true prophet of God is that their word will never fail to come true. None of the prophets, Isaiah, Amos, Micah, none of these men, uh, their prophecies never failed. They all came true, and here's how we know they came true, because they all died as well for their message. They were all executed because of the truth that they were teaching, and the people hated them for it. If you, if you uh, present a message that is pleasing to the ears, and is, this tickles your ears, then you're not going to lose your life over that, because you're actually speaking the things that people want to hear. These people all lost their heads and lost their lives because of speaking calling out sin and calling out these things and God would confirm in these men's lives things in their time that would come true to authenticate their true prophetic uh, position so in our culture too are there prophets today well according to ephesians there are i've never met any yet but we know in the end times false prophets will come around and we know that the pro- 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 office of prophecy is something that we can have today but we'll know if they're true or not, and if they have legitimacy by the way um, they operate with God's word. That's that's lesson three. God communicates His words to prophets through dreams, visions, and a spoken word. It can be the spoken word can be audible, or it can be through the spirit moving in someone's mind. But again, there would have to be testing of that if someone says, "Thus declares the Lord." And secondly. Um, we would know by the how often or the 100% accuracy of the work coming true whether they were legitimate profits or not.